Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with technology leaders and some of the most innovative minds in the industry to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they foresee for the future. No topic is off limits, so sit back, relax, and maybe take notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. For more than 25 years, Tony Saldana helped lead the digital transformation at Procter & Gamble, a company that is ranked 35th on the Fortune 500 and generates more than 65 billion every year. With so much at stake, every move Tony made had massive consequences, and each new technology he introduced had the potential to create massive ripple effects among the nearly 100,000 employees. Today, he is president of Transformant, where he is sharing his secrets and experience to help others go through successful digital transformation. On this episode of Future of Tech, Tony explains the need for constant disruption, where the media sector is on the disruption timeline, and why he believes we are in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution, and how we'll keep evolving using the technology at our disposal. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So, Tony, I'd like to welcome you to uh, a new episode of uh, Future of Tech. And today we're going to speak with Tony Saldanha. I hope I pronounced your family name uh, right. You got it. Great. Currently the president of Transformant, which helps uh, create disruptive IT and probably will speak in greater details in the uh, coming minutes about your company and the whole ecosystem. Before we do that, maybe let's start with a short, maybe, you know, you have a very, very long career, but most of it you've spent with one company. So maybe share with me, how is it to spend so many years in one company? I'm sure that most of our audience, you know, coming from Gen Y and Gen Z, for sure, they are spending like two years in one place and it's already a long time. So what's the perspective about so many years in one place? Yes, absolutely. Um, So firstly, uh, thanks for having me, Avishai. A real pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, so a little bit of background on myself. I spent uh, 27 years with one company, which was Procter & Gamble. I did uh, work for a couple of companies before Procter & Gamble, so... I had about four or five years of experience prior to that. But uh, the 27 years with Procter & Gamble was across six countries, you know, about 11 or 12 different assignments. So it really did not feel like it was one company. It was very different roles. And, And I had the absolute privilege of essentially almost evolving my career along with the IT industry. So, you know, I happened to be based in the Philippines and started the first offshore center in the Philippines in 1993. And then back in the U.S. in 2003, I was program leader for outsourcing about two-thirds of Procter & Gamble's IT and shared services, which was a $8 billion 10-year deal. And that kind of kicked off the whole outsourcing wave in the industry. And then, you know, a lot of uh, operational leadership of shared services across the world. At PNG, ITN and, and shared services is pretty large. It's about $2 billion. And I had the 
opportunity of leading that in all of the regions. And then, you know, more recently at Procter & Gamble, it became obvious to me that digital transformation, the world around us, meant that our real competition was no longer another large company, but startups. And so we had to do something more disruptive. So I had the opportunity of, you know, creating a disruptive ecosystem, kind of like Google X, except for boring areas like, you know, HR and, and finance and other areas. So I led that at Procter & Gamble. And then, you know, about two years ago, decided to strike off on my own, which is what Transformant is all about. Nice. Very nice. So there is a great movie called uh, Outsourced. So you're that guy, huh? You're that guy. That... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not quite sure. But no, I mean, I think along with the whole industry, you know, it's been a fairly fascinating ride. Yeah. And what can you share a bit from your previous background about PNG? There are many rumors about this company because it's kind of a legendary company with, uh, with a lot of background and history. But in terms of one of the things that I found very attractive is the fact that they, at least I've heard, that they are coming to any discussion with only one pager that needs to summarize the entire discussion. Is it true? That is true. That has been a part of PNG's legacy. You know, many, many decades ago, so, so this is actually fairly old, one of the CEOs of the company wanted to drive clarity of thought. And the way he did that was by introducing what you're describing, which is called the one-page memo. And, you know, as we all know, it's actually harder to write a one-pager when you're writing a big proposal than to write, you know, volumes on the topic. And so I think it's actually, you know, one of the first things I learned about, you know, almost now 30 years ago when I joined the company, which is, you know, how to crystallize your thinking into a relatively crisp manner. I'll share with you a short story. When I came in, I wanted to, uh, to do the same over here. And I've injected this uh, one-pager concept. And the first meeting I had with people, They all came with this one pager, but only with a footnote of, you know, number four or number two. So it was, uh, you need a microscope just to read it. Uh, so what are the topics you are covering in this one pager? How can you grasp an entire concept, as you said, that usually would take tens of pages into one pager? So behind the one pager at Procter Gamble is actually a, a structure. I mean, you know, the title matters a lot. So, you know, when you're writing a recommendation, you know, you spend a little time thinking about what's the objective of the memo. And so, you know, you might say a recommendation to invest so many million dollars to launch a new product, right? And then the structure is, is almost like a given. So you start with a little bit of background and, and the background could be eight to 10 lines. And you may say, you know, in this particular new category, The market in the world is growing at such and such a rate, it is such a size. Competition is relatively low. PNG has a right to win because of ABC, and therefore, you know, you create the background. And then the next section is the actual recommendation itself. So you basically say, I recommend that we launch a new XYZ product. And then, you know, you provide a few bullet points to kind of reinforce your thinking. And then the paragraph after that is either discussion or, you know, the data behind it. And then you have to kind of summarize it. And then at the end is basically a one-line recommendation and a next step, a set of next steps. So, so that structure actually helps you kind of crystallize your thinking. Very nice. You know, I took a course in the, in the university about philosophy. And one of the, uh, I think the first lecture 
about one of the greatest philosophers in the world. The professor came in and he gave us the name of the book that this philosopher wrote. And we spent almost, I think it was nearly two hours just discussing the title of the book and why, in few words, he was able to encapsulate the entire essence of this book, you know, just in, in the title. So going back to your uh, example, yes, the title or the headlines says a lot. So with your permission, you know, otherwise we'll continue to uh, blabber here about, you know, uh, history and stuff. Let's uh, dip a bit and understand uh, what do you see or what made you after so many years believe that now is the time to, to make a change? Skip, let's say, the personal issue and, and more focused on about Why do you believe this is, we are in a revolutional period and, and moment in, in the history of the IT industry? Yeah, you know, some of this basically comes from my last few years at Procter Gamble when, you know, I was faced with a little bit of an ironic problem. So Procter Gamble's IT and shared services were considered to be best in class in the industry. And yet the ironic problem you have is You know, what if everybody considers to be, you to be best in class, what do you do next, right? So when you go to the consultants, the normal recommendation is, well, you know, whatever you're doing, the formula is working. So you have to kind of leverage that. But you know, that's not true. And so I spent a lot of time about four or five years ago going around and talking to a hundred different organizations, so consultants, peer companies, venture capitalists. And I, you know, that gave me a very, simple insight, which is in today's world for large companies, your real competition is no longer, as I said, large companies, but startups. And, and when I dug into the details there, it became very obvious that the cost structure of operations in startups were about half of those uh, in similar large companies, right? Why is that? Uh, And a large part of that is because the work processes, you know, firstly, in, in smaller companies, work processes are a little simpler. But then secondly, the use of digital technology meant that they did processes differently. I'll give you a real simple example. In large companies, you know, when you, when you want to travel for business, you know, let's say from New York to San Francisco, you have a standard agency. You go to them, they book your ticket, you know, so on and so forth. In many digitally native companies, so it doesn't have to be small companies, Google is an example of this, you don't have a travel agency. What you have is you go to a system and you say three-day trip from New York to San Francisco, and what you get is a budget. The budget says, you know, $1,000. And at that point in time, you're free to book online, Google, you know, stay Airbnb within certain policies, stay with your friends. And what I found out is not only is that operation simpler, so you don't have a back office in India or Costa Rica to take your receipts and match them against, you know, your expense report and all that kind of stuff. You don't have purchasing people doing contracts. But, you know, when you free up the people, they end up actually spending 15 to 30% less of the travel budget, right? And so this is just an example of how, you know, digitally native companies have much simpler processes than large companies. And so that's really what convinced me that, you know, This is a little bit like the previous revolutions. The World Economic Forum has called this the fourth industrial revolution, where this digital technology is changing every aspect of how we do business or even how we live lives. And so our job has got to be to rewire ourselves as companies, as individuals, as societies, 
from the third industrial revolution to the fourth. And that's what drove me down to create, you know, to write the book and do the work on a digital transformation. Nice. So walk me through the steps. So you see that something is changing. I believe the traveling example is, is a good one because, um, you know, I can relate to it in so many different uh, aspects. And then you understand that the market is being disrupted by many small companies. Okay, so what prevents the big companies now to adopt the same concept, you know, just become linear machines and do the same? What's the issue? Yes. And that is the crux of the issue. I mean, in reality, I mean, you know, CEOs, boards all recognize that, you know, digital disruption is a really big deal and, and they want to drive change. And then the issue is exactly what you said. How do you scale that amount of change in a large company? Right. And, you know, people talk about immune systems and all that kind of stuff. The second insight that I got from this exercise is the understanding that in large companies, we rely on our people, our reward systems to drive stable growth. Right. Procter Gamble is, you know, 180 something year old company. And it is a 180 something year old company because you know, we have ways of doing things, including the one-page memo, right? We have ways of, you know, driving stable growth in the company. And so whenever you come out with radically different ideas, so when you say, hey, instead of doing, you know, normal travel and expenses, why don't we use data? We have to realize that we are designed to essentially play a little safer than small startup companies might do, right? And so that is the whole issue behind scaling change. And so what I tried to do is understand this issue from an organization culture standpoint and a reward system standpoint. And so if most of our people are rewarded to drive incremental change, you know, 5%, 10%, and you come up with an idea which is 10x, right, you know, 10 times change, you're going to have to make sense of all of this to the organization. And so we created the, this organization, which is called an edge organization, because it operates on the edge of the normal Procter & Gamble system. So you have different reward systems. You have you know, more risk, more return, and so on and so forth. And then I worked with a lot of experts in the industry to figure out how to come out with 10x change, you know, like the Google X type of new ideas and then how to change the reward systems in the core of the organization to bring that change in a logical manner. But that is the big challenge for most companies. You know, as you know, GE under Jeff Emel tried to, you know, drive a lot of change by saying, we're gonna be a digital company. Yeah. And it was only partly successful. And, and the reason for that was exactly this issue of scale and change. So this is interesting. Were you able to find the, uh, the right mechanism, how to, uh elevate people to innovate in a big corporate and how to kind of reward them in the right way? Um, I think it's, a, it's obviously a complex issue, so I'll be careful not to say I have the answer. Yeah. But I think what I have is a framework, which is the basis of the book. And what I was able to do was to basically say, depending on your change situation, you have to look at you know, the culture of your company. Some companies are much more change averse than others. And then the situation, you know, if you are in the midst of a, you know, burning platform, you're going to be able to drive change faster than others, right? 
And so based on that template, what you're able to do is then, you know, understand how to change reward systems. I'll give you a few examples. You have to look at creating your innovation team, not with innovation heavy people, but people that have deep credibility in the organization and you pull them together and put them in a different ecosystem at the edge of the organization. So, for example, at Procter & Gamble, what I did was across all of the internal operations, the finance, supply chain, marketing, I picked two people, two very, very credible people, senior guys that used to run operations in finance or in, in sales. And then I put them together in this edge organization and had them come out with the 10x, 10 times disruptive ideas. And I gave them a methodology on how to do that in that environment. Now, when they were able to see for themselves, they have the credibility to come back into the rest of the organization because they're known as operations guys and convince others that this is possible. And that's a different methodology than you know having just innovators be put into Silicon Valley and come out with ideas in the rest of the company. I made this a, a rotational assignment. Every two years, you bring in more credible leaders go back. And then change the reward systems of the core organization. So, you know, you have separate action plans. I mean, we all know that a typical good action plan has, you know, deliver the operations and drive continuous improvement. We created a third leg of the action plan to say, you deliver stable operations, you do continuous improvement, and you have a third leg, which is only about 10, 20% of your total focus, disrupt yourself, right? And so we create these frameworks and reward systems to make this much more systemic. Interesting. So you believe that innovation can come not from, let's call it the city office, rather from the operational people? I think scaled change, which is the only change that matters, right? Because, you know, eventually your results have to show in terms of Wall Street metrics, if, if you're a you know, for-profit company. If you're going to scale it, you're going to have to impact you know, the core of the organization. I think the ideas can be driven by the CTO's office or you know, the digital officer or you know, the CEO. But if that's all it does, if it stays within a small part of the organization, then you're not going to see scale change. And so I actually recommend to the clients that I work with that you create the, and, and by the way, these disruptive innovation teams have got to be really small teams, you know, a dozen, two dozen people, even if you have 100,000 people in your company. And then what you try to do is have them influence the operations of the organization, because that's when innovation becomes reality. Okay, we'll speak more about it because I have some, uh, you know, some more uh, questions to uh, to pick your sure. brain. I've read in your background that you've also been an advisory for Cloudera. And I was wondering, uh, first, they are really nice guys. I met them, I think, just before they got the uh, the big investment from Intel way back then, you know, of nearly $1 billion. And I think it was 925. And um, how did you apply your new concepts or vision into the the work in Cloudera? So this was uh, uh, several years ago. I, I was on their customer advisory board at Cloudera. And Procter & Gamble actually has had a very long history 
of innovative thinking in, in IT and shared services around analytics and, and technology related to that. And so several years ago, this was about five or six years ago, I was leading the organization for analytics in the company. And it was becoming very clear to me that technology platforms in you know, all of these large companies had to change because storing data, analyzing data is getting so cheap that, you know, you cannot essentially make databases and read and write essentially become the bottleneck, which is what was happening before Hadoop and and other forms of databases uh, kind of came along. And so as part of the advisory board there, I, I was trying to drive the availability of the platform, you know, not just for unstructured data, but, you know, in some use cases also as applied to structured data and drive much more of the use case thinking than platform thinking. So it was a fun time. It, it was a relatively short period of time, but uh, it was critical, I think, in the evolution of analytics for me at that time. Yeah. So now I think that we are warm enough. Take me through the uh, steps of the fourth revolution, as you call it. So we've mentioned several of those, but let's do it uh, methodically and walk me through the uh, different components or the different aspects of this revolution as you see them. So if I may, just, just to kind of provide a little bit of context on the connection between the fourth industrial revolution and digital transformation. So the first important thing that I need to share is that I strongly believe that the fourth industrial revolution is digital disruption. And therefore, digital transformation, which has become a buzzword, in the hundred interviews that I did, I got, you know, probably a dozen different answers to the question on what exactly is digital transformation, all the way from, oh, don't worry about it, it's just a buzzword, all the other extreme, to, oh, it's all of the robots coming for our jobs. And so it became very obvious that you have to have common language. And so the first principle is the fourth industrial revolution is digital disruption. And therefore, digital transformation, which is the survival in the revolution, has got to be the rewiring of your entire business model so you are successful in the fourth industrial revolution. And so that provides a firm definition. So in other words, digital transformation is not technology. It's not about going to the cloud or about artificial intelligence. It's not about retraining people. It's about hard business outcomes. So if you are able to continue to beat competition in the fourth industrial revolution, whoever that competition may be, even if it's startups, then you have rewired yourself in the fourth industrial revolution. So that was the reason I kind of got into fourth industrial revolutions and digital transformation. Then the second question is, okay, I get it. Digital transformation is rewiring yourself in the fourth industrial revolution. Then, you know, how do I manage the spectrum of people that are playing with technology all the way to the other extreme, which is people have re-engineered the culture of the organization. And that's when I came up with this five-step model for digital transformation, right? The first step, uh, step one, is what most organizations consider to be digital transformation, which is automation. So, you know, you're using SAP or cloud or, you know, whatever it is to automate your existing work processes. In reality, that's not digital transformation. It's automation, but it's, a, it's an important step towards digital transformation, right? The second step is what I call siloed. This is really where in large companies, maybe you have a subsidiary or a function, maybe the finance organization that is starting to say, 
hey, we have to do finance differently, maybe using totally digital methods for accounts payables and receivables and completely new work processes. But it's siloed. That's the challenge. It is not a company strategy. You don't have a digital strategy for the company. Stage three is what I actually call partially synchronized. And partially synchronized means that although there is a company strategy, a la General Electric, where they actually said, we are going to be a digital company, the efforts to actually get there are still not completely synchronized, right? So you have you know, a digital officer, you have the operations, and they're not really connected to each other, right? And that's really where General Electric was a few years ago. Stage four is fully synchronized, which is essentially where you have a completely integrated CEO-driven business strategy, and the business is actually completely able to transform the way it operates from a technology standpoint to the fourth industrial revolution. But what it is still missing is the culture element. And that's what stage five is, which is what I call living DNA. Living DNA is when everybody in the company becomes a disruptor of themselves. That's what gives you, you know, like a Netflix, which has in 20 years disrupted its own business model four times, right? From mail and DVD to streaming to original content to international. And the only way that happens is if everybody in the company understands that this is not about technology, it's about disrupting yourself. And when you keep disrupting yourself, you stay ahead of competition. And so this framework gives boards of directors and CEOs a way to think about where they are in the picture and what goals to set. And hopefully that's the better way of getting to rewiring yourself than the confusion that exists. So let me play a bit the devil's advocate because I'm hearing you. I'm saying, okay, can you do those five steps without a big IT transformation, without the technology behind the scenes to support you? Can you be the same oh. organization as you were and just decide that now you want to rewire yourself in a digital way and, uh, and you're there all five steps without the technology revolution? Oh, not at all. No, no, no. So please don't misunderstand. Technology is the root. It is the oxygen for all of this change. Without technology, none of this change is possible. So even in my travel and expense example that I gave you, right? It is a combination of three things, which I'll be, by the way, I'm glad you asked this question because this kind of gets to the root of how to get 10x disruption. You need all three things, or at least two out of the three things working together. One is exponential technology or new technology. The second is completely outcome-based processes. And the third is an ecosystem to support you. So even in the case of the travel and expenses, if you don't have all of the data, you know, including from your corporate credit card providers to let you know where your employees are spending your money, you're not going to be able to become like a Google when it comes to travel expenses. So, and that data is going to come in only through, you know, upgrading your technology. You know, exponential technologies, if you don't have algorithms that are able to look at all of that expense data from your expense card providers and look for fraud, that's not going to work, right? Uh, so again, that's technology. Ecosystems, if you were looking at just your own expense receipts, that's not good enough than actually having good data flow with, again, the same travel expense credit card providers and so on and so forth. So the point that I try to drive is 
technology is absolutely necessary, but not sufficient. In addition to technology, you absolutely need to make transformation a business Wall Street outcome-driven exercise, not a technology-driven exercise. And you have to make it a culture exercise to make it systemic, right? And so when you have those three layers together, that's when you get systemic transformation. Oh, good. So at least there we are in agreement And as we are in a, you know, a technology podcast, let me ask you uh, <laughs> a few more questions about that angle. So through your journey in the history of this industry, you've started your career, if, if you know, if my math is not doing me wrong, somewhere around the 80s. Yes. How do you feel, you know, we've progressed since then? And how do you feel or what's your uh, overview about where we are at at this point in time? I think that... Our industry, the IT industry, is absolutely the place to be in at this point in time. I believe we can stop now the, uh, the podcast. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a good place to end. No, seriously, I honestly wish that I was starting my career today. I really do. Because I have been through the evolution of IT being a subset of finance or data processing somewhere in the back office. I have been through the wave of IT being a commodity, you know, let's outsource you and have somebody else do this, right? I have been through the more recent stage of the understanding that automation is, quote, driving productivity. And now we're at the stage where IT is the driver of transformation for the whole business model. The CIO of today has such an incredible opportunity of becoming the most important consultant to business strategy in the whole company. And for them to do that, they have to accept that challenge, that their job is not just to do technology, but their job is to become the quote-unquote McKinsey to the CEO and the board of directors and to help them drive that change. Yeah, yeah fully agree. You've mentioned, you know, the 80s, two days back, There was an image taken, I, I've seen it, I think, in, in a WhatsApp or in Twitter or something that a guy was sending a mainframe screen and saying that in New York, the mainframe was unable to adhere to the, uh, you know, to the scale. And I wondered, you know, how many people do really understand what they saw for from their perspective, it was yet another server, you know, but there are very uh, few people that still uh, remember how a mainframe screen looks like and, and understand, you know, the points that you've just mentioned. But do you see, you've mentioned the CIO taking a much a vital role, which I completely agree to. How do you see this kind of hitting the CTO? And do you see the two of them now converge? Or do you see Going back to your innovation role, is the CTO now becoming something different? CIO is different. One of them is more business savvy. The other one should focus on innovation or... So I think, and we'll keep the IT company separate because I think the role of the CTO in, in IT companies ends up being a little different because they are more about creating products. But in most user companies, I actually think that because digital transformation as a business imperative And business operations, whether you call it the IT function or shared services, but you know, it's, it's essentially digitization of the operations, is now starting to converge. I think that it is really, really important to have one leader 
that's empowered by the board of directors and the CEO to do both, to do the transformation piece, but then you know also the operation and the day-to-day automation piece, right? Now, you know, whether that's the CIO or you call it the digital officer or you know, whatever it is. Actually, the latest data I have seen is that companies that actually have a CIO and then a separate digital officer are actually not very successful. That whole model is not working. So my recommendation is to essentially grow the role of you know, the CIO slash shared services leader and innovation and make them the common operations and transformation leader of the enterprise. Actually, in my book, I actually suggest a rewording to basically call it the digital resources officer, right? Mm. Just like human resources, HR, their job is not to control every human in the company, but to provide the resources and to essentially use those resources to make the best you know, human company. I think that's the new role of the CIO if they are able and willing to take that on. The CTO, I think, is a vital component because as you were very accurately saying earlier on, you have to have the foundation, the digital foundation, to be able to do some of that transformation. And I think that's the job of the CTO is is to essentially make sure that they're translating the, the business transformation into action, both in terms of operations as well as, you know, the the continuous improvement. So I'm the CEO of a company. I listened to this podcast. I uh, kind of liked it. I'm going through this transformation, through the steps. What will go wrong? Where am I going to fail? That's, again, a very, very important question. You know, 70% of all digital transformations fail, right? Or IDG and McKinsey and, and several other studies, right? And they fail for two reasons, two very simple reasons. I tend to have a simplistic mind, so I try and simplify things. In my mind, those two reasons for failure is one, clarity of goal setting. So this is the language, you know, digital transformation means so many different things, so many, so much work. And so for CEOs, you know, the first point of failure is to be exquisitely clear that Digital transformation is going to be about rewiring the whole business model, and they have to start with that as the goal, right? Not about, you know, tools or technologies or IT or, you know, whatever it is. They have to essentially be digital, not do digital. So it starts with them, okay, in terms of goal setting. And then the second reason why digital transformation fail is actually execution methodology. So... When you start with confusion on what digital transformation is, the actual execution ends up either being, you know, siloed innovation in Silicon Valley, you know, setting up small little incubators there, or it becomes execution of projects that are all digital projects, but they're not scaling change, right? Whereas in the book, what I've done is I have essentially demonstrated how you need to bring together three methodologies. So digital transformation methodology is not just IT project management. I think it's just one of three things. IT project management, which is execution, is one. Organization change management is the second. And the third is essentially high-risk, high-return venture capitalist approaches to change, right? And putting all those three together, I have suggested a new execution methodology uh, to drive scale change. 
Now let's take the other extreme. So whether I didn't listen to this podcast or whether I didn't read your book, I'm a CEO of a company. I believe that I'm doing okay. I did some automation, did some changes in my IT. I have some, uh, you know, new kids in the block that they are doing some cool stuff. I didn't embrace an end-to-end approach to the uh, digitized revolution. In what way do I harm my organization, in your view? I think you harm all three key stakeholders in your business. In my mind, the three key stakeholders are, you know, obviously your own organization. In many ways, I believe, you know, that's an important key stakeholder. You harm them by essentially not upskilling them and upscaling them and then, you know, leaving them open to risks as your company starts to go down the tubes that they're really, really harmed. This is actually one of the things I worry a lot about when it comes to, you know, what I consider to be innovation theater. So, you know, do a lot of cool technology projects that never scale in the organization. I think that's actually very, very corrosive because it gives you the feeling that you're doing something, but, you know, you're really not driving the business outcome. And that's one of the reasons I think that's dangerous. But anyway, that's the first stakeholders that I think you have. The second is, I think, obviously, your consumers, right? Because I think your customers, I mean, in most successful companies, you're not going to see them desert you like overnight. But what you start to see is your customer base starting to feel like, you know, you're taking them for granted. You're not providing the same services or the products that startups were giving you and and so on and so forth. So your value proposition, you're charging them money, but you're not giving them the same value proposition. You're starting to hurt them and eventually they will desert you. And then, you know, obviously you're, you're hurting your financial stakeholders, whether it's Wall Street or, you know, your ownership of the company. Because sooner rather than later, in an industrial revolution, uh, you either disrupt yourself or you get disrupted by somebody else. So let's talk a bit about this disruption technology that we've seen on all over. In your eyes, what are, let's say, the few key technological changes that you've seen and that you believe are essential for this revolution? I think that there are four or five technologies that are absolutely at the core. And by the way, all of them are driven by the rise of affordable computing. I mean, the fact that, you know, you can process a human genome at, you know, quite literally a hundred dollars a person. That was yesterday. Today, it's like uh, nine. Yes, exactly. Yes. And it's, it's going to be a few cents in a few years. All of that's, you know, obviously because of Moore's law and cheaper computing. But the most important technology is, I think, the rise of AI. And I use that broadly, not just the deep mind kind of Google AI, but, you know, even the use of artificial intelligence on Amazon to say, if you bought X, you might be interested in Y. I mean, all of this is different shapes of AI. So I think actually, if you had to pick only one technology to focus on, and that would be a mistake to pick only one, I would say you have to understand how artificial intelligence is changing the business models, right? The second one I strongly believe is very much earlier in the whole revolution, but it's going to be extremely important, is actually blockchain. You know, blockchain is still in that hype stage, but in my work at Procter Gamble, even four or five years ago, we came out with multiple incredibly disruptive use cases that are being employed today. So the key in blockchain is not to get carried away by the technology, 
but to really focus on the few handful of use cases that are already mature and they are incredibly disruptive. So that's the second. The third is, it's actually not as disruptive, but very important, which is smart automation. So the ability, you know, including low code, no code or robotics process automation, and of course, AI to even take your current business operations and get tremendous value out of them, I think is important. The fourth one is actually, I think for physical goods, obviously the internet of thing and the ability to do physical products differently, I think is very disruptive. And then the fifth one is I call a business or industry specific disruptive technology. So for example, if you happen to be in the medical industry, you know, then biotech is really important. If you happen to be in the solar industry, obviously, you know, material sciences is being disrupted. So but I think altogether, depending on the industry, these are the five that I would encourage all CEOs to look at. Any special uh, focus areas for the telco and media environment and ecosystem? Oh, absolutely. Let me start with actually media. I think, you know, media is obviously already halfway through the big disruption, right? I mean, yeah. you know, it started initially with newspapers and stuff like that. But I think the ability to find use cases specifically in the AI area. I mean, you know, today when 90% of the short updates on, you know, Yahoo Online on sports and finance are written by bots, right, rather than humans, you know, that's pretty disruptive. So I think that is one that is a huge, huge impact in the media area. Telco is, is actually fascinating because I think a combination of everything from physical products, right? So the actual manufacturing of IT products all the way through the space-related internet work that now I think through Elon Musk's company, you know, you're going to change the way globally internet is going to be provided. I think that's going to be a fascinating disruption. Yeah, I agree. We are coming nearly to the end and I would like to ask you about your last several years of experiencing being an entrepreneur. You know, what is it that you like the most in being an entrepreneur? What makes you get up in the morning and sing, if not a song, but maybe, you know. <laughs> yeah, you don't want me singing, but uh, yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> I think, look, eventually, the best thing about being an entrepreneur is to essentially realize that it is all completely up to you on you know what you do and what you don't do right and some people including me they absolutely love that freedom the ability to say this is what i need to do and then to challenge yourself to go get it done using other resources you know with its 27 years at Procter and gamble I, i was really very privileged to work in you know what is acknowledged to be you know, the best training ground in the, in the world and, you know, one of the best companies and things like that. But even in the best company, there's 20% of your day-to-day activity that is not necessarily things you like to do, whether it is, you know, how do you figure out how to cut budgets or endless meetings or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think as an entrepreneur, you have the freedom to say, well, if this was my company, this is the way I would do it. And that's what I love about it. Now, the downside of being an entrepreneur is that, you know, the buck stops with you, which is, you know, when there are good times, you know, your business does well. When there are bad times, you're completely accountable for yourself and for your people to figure out how to deal with it. And that's why I think it's the best thing for some people. Others don't like it. 
me, I absolutely love it. Great, great. Any other uh, things that we didn't cover and you'd, you'd like to chat about? No, I, I think Avish, I've, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I feel like the probing that you were doing around the role of technology and technologists in today's world is maybe the only other thing that I would like to conclude with. I honestly feel that any industrial revolution is an opportunity of a lifetime or it can be a threat of a lifetime, unfortunately, right? But I think if you have the right kind of attitude, it can be an opportunity of a lifetime. And that's my message to leaders, CEOs, boards of directors, specifically to the IT industry. I think that this is not just an opportunity of a lifetime, but we are incredibly privileged to work in the one industry. You know, we're in the middle of that change. So I feel it's a very exciting time to be in the industry. I think it's all up to us. I think we all need to kind of challenge ourselves to step up to it. And I absolutely love being in the middle of all of this. And I know your listeners, you know, because they're all kind of very intrigued by, you know, where's the industry headed? They all think alike. But I think this is going to be a fun time. Completely agree, Tony. It was a pleasure. And see you soon face to face, I hope. Would love to. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. For listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.